So we got up into this trail, and he got a call that said, hey, you guys are on the wrong trail. You need, to, you need to take a different trail to the route you were planning on going. And he said, oh, okay. And so we went back to the trailhead, back quite a ways to the trailhead, and then we hiked up to where we were headed. Um, however, we didn't make it there. So I got to see all kinds of beauty. I got to go across uh, uh, Snowmelt Creek, and it was just beautiful, and I got pictures, but I didn't get to my destination, unfortunately. We had to turn around at 1 o'clock, you know, it's that middle point that you can't go any farther. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck in a storm maybe, or you're just going to be out past your time limit, so you got to go back. And so I had to go back. But in all of that, I enjoyed looking at the creation around me, seeing mountains. We, we sang um, in the first service, we sang a, a song that I don't know that I've ever sung before, but a verse talks about the mountains pointing and trying to get to the heavens, but yet they're in under the domain of God, and they can't even reach to the heavens, but that's where they're pointing. And I was thinking of uh, the camp scene, and I was thinking of all the beauty that I saw, and I was reminded of this morning the sovereign reign of a holy God, creation all pointing to his design, yet bound in his perfect empire. And we will one day see a so much better empire. We will see a wonderful world. We will see creation made good again. No more thorns, no more thistles, mountains that soar, beauty beyond compare. And so the hike reminded me that I did not make it to my final destination, but also we're not to our final destination yet. We're on a journey, and we're going to get to a final destination, and I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be way better than I imagined, and I'll, I'll get to see what I was supposed to see. And I'm looking forward to that. Peter reminds us that we're exiles. He reminds us that we're on a journey. He reminds us that we're, this is not our home. We're pilgrims. And it's exciting to know that God is going to take us to an expected end. So what have we learned so far in First Peter? Um, we've been reminded of tons of different things. But in this section specifically, what we're into today, First um, Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we're going to see Peter kind of drawing several pieces in this letter into conclusion a little bit, summarizing several ideas. So what's exciting about this is that um, we get to see uh, some beauty come from what Peter's talking about, suffering, because we've heard a lot about suffering. My wife um, was talking to me the other day, and she's like, honey, I mean, this is about suffering again. When are we going to get done with this book? You know, <laughs> it's suffering, you know. Um, no. We're, we're going to get done with suffering when we see Jesus. Because remember, a couple weeks ago, we saw that the righteous one had died for the unrighteous one, so that at the end of this life, there will be no more suffering. We get to look forward to a coming king and a coming kingdom where pain will be no more. For those who are called, the elect, this book is to the elect. He says, listen, God's going to finish what he started in you, and it's going to be really good. And although there are chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, there's a little time of trial, suffering for a little while, there's going to be an end to that. And it's more precious than gold, more precious than silver. It's glorious, and it's coming. And so we're invited in. And so if you've ever gone fishing, um, you know, if, if you've ever gone fishing with more than one fishing pole, I don't know if that's legal here in Oklahoma, but maybe. I've got four or five, five boys, so I could take a bunch of poles and tell them to cast them in, and I could watch them, and they could go play. 
But if I did that, I would have a problem if, if two fish were on the line, maybe even three. I'd, I'd be really in trouble. I'd be diving in, grabbing all these lines and yanking them. So that wouldn't be good. Peter was a fisherman too. Uh, he actually used a line. Remember the story of Jesus on the end of, uh, said, you know, go get a line, go throw it in the water, and the fish is going to have some gold in his mouth for our taxes. And so he just went down there and caught a fish and pulled out the money and paid their taxes right there. So he used lines, but he also used the net. And so Peter is, is casting a net over this message, all of what we've heard so far. And he's kind of tugging it in. And it only takes one person to do this with this net. And he's bringing all these ideas in, and he's not struggling with four or five different lines. He's, he's bringing this net in. So you, you hear the message of the gospel coming in. You hear that Jesus is our coming Savior. You hear that Jesus, he suffered for us. He was our example earlier in chapter 3. You hear that Jesus has changed our lives. He's transformed us from um, people that were caught up in sin, but now in Christ we've made a decisive break with sin, and we don't have to live that way any longer. Actually, even when we're persecuted, we can do what's good. We can do what's right, and we can grow to be like Christ. We heard about last week, right, about God's grace, his manifold grace. That changes how we live now in this world where we've made a decisive break from sin. Our, our grace, uh, the grace of God's on display in hospitality. It's on display in how we live in front of people, how we invite others into our world, how we talk about God, how we magnify him. And now grace, again, is displayed in the gospel of this truth that God is a sovereign king over suffering. We'll see today in um, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, that God, as a sovereign king over all things, is faithful, and we can trust him. So, let's read this passage, listen along as I read, and then we'll get into the word. Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trials when they come, when they come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's God's word. Our first point is that we're not to be surprised when fiery trials come, right? Don't be surprised. That's what he says right here. Verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised. He said beloved before. If you remember... Um, in chapter 2, he, he starts a new section, says, Beloved. He's talking to believers. This letter from Peter would have been read in one sitting. They would have got the letter. They would have all gathered together. And with open hearts and ready ears, they would sit down. They would listen to this letter being read. And so they would have sat down for 20, 30 minutes, maybe even less than that. And they would have heard this, redder, this letter read to them. And they would have heard, Beloved, listen. And then they would have heard it again, Beloved, listen. Go back, so, he's, so Peter is now summarizing. He's taking those last points and saying, Beloved, listen, when suffering comes, chapter 1 said it's going to come. There will be light afflictions for a little while, 
but they're going to produce something that's really good, more precious than gold and silver. So don't be surprised when these trials come. And why do they come? It comes right here because it's to test us, to make our faith genuine. Go back to chapter 1 again, verses 6 and 7. Our testing and our trials for this momentary light time is for our genuineness, the proving of our faith to make us look like what we're called to be. We're called elect. At the beginning of the chapter, or beginning of the, um, of the book, Peter says, to the elect. And he says, be holy in chapter 1, right? He's calling us to something that we aren't yet. I'm not holy. Are you holy? Remember what we talked about with holiness? It's not a sinless perfection, but it's a pursuit of our Savior. It's a looking forward to the salvation that's going to be revealed and cooperating with it. So, right now, chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. And why are we not to be surprised? Well, it's because they're supposed to. He already said they're going to come. If you've accepted Christ, you will have some trials. They're going to be there. And so we need to think about that. We, need, we know, though, that in chapter 3, we saw, again, you know, those points that Peter's drawing in to conclusion. We saw that Christ is our example of suffering and how to, how to suffer. He, he wasn't reviled, or he didn't revile when he was reviled. And so he says, suffer that way. And then in 3.18, Jesus Christ came to suffer in our place. He was our Savior. He accomplished what we never could. We saw that. 4, 1 to 6, he reminds us the gospel is what helps us arm ourselves with the same kind of thinking. That there's good news at the end of this life that I will be no longer under wrath. Jesus took my wrath. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. And so that gospel hope actually moves me to take on the same mind as Christ in suffering. And then God's grace in the next several verses you heard about last week. And so then why aren't we to be sur surprised when trials come? And we'll see that in a little bit. We're to remember that the majority of these converts were probably Gentile converts. So they heard about this message, the good news of the gospel. They were transformed by it. And now all of a sudden, they're getting persecuted. They're, it's, this is probably not an uh, empire-wide persecution from Rome, but Rome wasn't saying you can't persecute. And so, locally, they were being persecuted. Possibly, this was just friends maligning them. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. People, people said, you don't, you don't go to the drinking parties with us anymore. What's going on? And they malign their character, and they say, these Christians, they're changing our culture. This is a bunch of craziness. They're getting um, maligned, insulted, harmed, character-wise, because they're followers of Jesus. And now, and now they're... They might be questioning, what's going on? Does God not see this? Does he not care? This was good news. Why are we suffering? So Peter's reminding them, don't be, don't be alarmed when suffering comes. This was part of the message. Jesus and Mark looked at his followers and said, I've got no place to lay my head. You take up your cross and follow me. It's not going to be easy. Following Jesus is not easy. This was the message all along. This is the message that transformed the whole of this culture. And now, Peter's reminding them, it's not going to be easy. But that difficulty is good. 
because it tells us something. So uh, Peter's reminding these Gentile believers that, okay, okay, we can handle this. There, there's a reason for this. God is in charge. God is faithful. So we see that theme. So now, um, that, that don't be surprised word, it's from hospitality language. So if you're, if you're going to have people over at your house, you're, you're probably going to set plates out. You're going to have cups out already. You're going to have them come to sit at your table. You're going to have a meal prepared. You're going to have maybe, um, maybe your, your living room fully clean, ready to roll. Everything's tucked away in hiding places or kicked under the couch or shoved in the closet. Or maybe you actually did clean it. But when you have somebody come, you're ready. And so this do not, do not be surprised is, is that word used in a negative light. Don't be caught off guard by a guest trials. He's going to come. And so Peter is using some hospitality language. While he's already said in this book, you're a household. You're a new household that God's building. Guess what? That house is going to get some guests. Some trials are going to come. Don't be alarmed. He says a little bit later in this passage, you're a house of God, household of God. Don't be surprised at this guest. So verse 12, don't be surprised when fiery trials come. It's the guests that you invited when you invited Christ into your heart and your life. So then verse 13 talks to us. Actually, first, before we go to 13, uh, that word test or proof, um, it is, it's like uh, all these high schoolers going through tests just a couple weeks ago, getting all these tests done so that they can find out what their score is to see how well they place in the end. If one of those kids gets a, a perfect score on an SAT or an ACT, it's, it's big news. We had a girl that was in my grade who got a straight perfect grade on her ACT. And it hit the news, and it was exciting, and people were talking about it, and, you know, this interview, oh, I did have a question on one, but guess what? Testing, trials are a good thing because they're meant to get you someplace. Military, you guys are in here, you fly, and you fly, and you test, and you train, and you train, and you train so that you're ready in whatever situation to accomplish the end. You're going to get there. Testing and trial is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's to prove us. It's to shape us. And Philippians 1, 6 says that God will finish the work he's begun in us. And if he's going to finish that work, then he's going to use some tests and some trials. Abraham experienced one of those, big one, right on top of a mountain with his son, his promised son. God said, go sacrifice your son, right? So what, 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 what happens? He goes up the mountain, and he's ready to sacrifice his son. He passes the test. He didn't know it was a test, but he passed it because he knew that he feared God first. And Hebrews tells us what his thinking was. It says that he was sure that God would come and raise Isaac from the dead. So God said, no, don't, don't sacrifice your son. I know that you love me. I know that you believe me. So God's going to use trials. He's going to use tests in your life to shape you. And Peter says, listen, when trials come, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed at that house guest. Be ready for that. Because it's going to happen. Those tests are going to come. Don't think it's strange, basically. And so, uh, in verse 13, we, we move on here. Rather, our second point is rejoice in Christ's sufferings. Rather, rejoice that that trial is there to make you different. There to shape you. There to change you. So, 
we're to rejoice at various testings and trials. So how is that good? I mean, how, how in the world are we supposed to think about this? There is going to be exuberant praise when Christ comes back and we see his glory revealed. Guess what? His glory revealed is all about his work and what he's doing. What is God doing in your life? He is all about making you into his image and shaping you so that one day, Jude 24 and 25 says, we will stand blameless before the throne of God. God is all about his glory on the final day in Jesus Christ because you've been shaped and changed. You're going to pass the test. That's good news. So trials become a rejoicing. It becomes beneficial. It becomes helpful. It becomes something that has a good light because chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 said we've made a decisive break from sin when we see and take the mind on us that Christ had on him and we see that transforming us so that we don't go after what we used to go after we've been changed and so now your life is is a progress a continual progress of being changed and transformed so trials are that good thing trials are there um, as an evidence that I'm being made new I get to glorify Christ at his in, in this suffering, because when he comes, his glory is revealed, and I'm a part of it. You're a part of God's glory on display when you suffer here, and you suffer in a way that gives God glory, and you suffer for doing good, we've heard. Don't suffer for evil, this passage is going to tell us in a second, but suffer for good. And guess what? You're participating in God's glory when it's revealed. We're looking forward to that from chapter 1, a salvation, glory that's going to be revealed. That's amazing. We're looking forward to that future grace on display. That's going to happen because we're going through trials now. God's shaping his display of glory in your life. That's good. So don't be surprised by trials. They're a good thing. Rejoice. So if I'm reading this passage correctly, rejoicing in suffering is a good thing because I'm getting the opportunity to magnify Christ to expand the glory of Christ that is coming insofar as I embrace suffering in Christ in this life. It's one of the reasons Paul and Peter and a host of other martyrs could say and sing God's praise in the midst of trial. Paul said, man, I've been stoned this many times, I've been beaten this many times, all of this, it's all for Christ. It's all for Christ. In the Philippian jail, what are they doing after they've been beaten and it's midnight? Paul and Silas, what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing after being beaten. They're rejoicing in trial for doing good. They're being persecuted, and they're rejoicing. Guess what happens? God uses it in that town to create the church he writes the letter to later to talk about rejoicing in suffering. God is going to use suffering and trials and difficulty to shape us into his glory, glorious image, and for his glory. Verse 14 says, So then if we're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The spirit of glory is the Holy Spirit in us. So when we know we're going through persecutions and it's hard and it's difficult and we're rejoicing, guess what? That's assurance that you've got the Spirit of God in you. That's assurance that you're on the track that God wants you on, that you're going to see the end, and that's going to be complete, and it's going to be good. You're going to be blameless before God. The Spirit of God's glory rests on your life when you're going through sufferings and difficulty with joy and gladness. 
it shapes you, and it's a display to a watching world. Having good times is great and, and wonderful, but when people see you suffer through bad times and you smile, it's totally blowing their mind. You've got friends and you've got neighbors that will one day watch you suffer, and maybe they have and maybe they are right now. And when you're doing that, looking to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith, you're doing it for God's glory, and that'll be on display then, but you're doing it right now because of the Spirit of God in you, and it should encourage you. It should move you. God's glory on display is demonstrating when His presence is in us when we suffer for doing good. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. We don't want that kind of suffering. And so why did Peter put that in here? He's writing to elect people. You know, he's writing to people that are being changed and transformed. But he's probably saying this because it's not done. Don't suffer for doing evil. You've had a conscious break with sin because you've taken on yourself the mind of Christ. Now, keep going. It's an encouragement at this point. Don't suffer for the old way. Suffer for doing good. Suffer by the name of a Christian. Normally, Christian was used as a maligning term in that culture, but Peter's using it here. Suffer as a follower of Jesus Christ. Suffer for doing good. Don't suffer for doing wrong. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Suffer as a Christian. And embrace it. It's going to come. Rejoice in it. It's there to show you that you're being transformed and that God's going to finish his work that he started. So that's exciting. That's good news. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God in the name of a Christian. Glorify God for what he's doing in your life and how he's transforming you. Verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 17 then. God has in mind a purified people that will stand around his throne and worship him and give him glory. So he would have a purified people, and he's going to begin the work here. Malachi chapter 3 um, talks about uh, a future prophecy of the coming Christ coming into his temple and beginning at his temple and purifying it. And that word is a testing and purifying like a furnace would purify gold and silver. It's a testing and a trial and a washing like the, the, the professional wash person would come in with soap, the fuller. And he would wash. And so Jesus comes into this earth and begins with his chosen people, Jerusalem, the Israelites, right there at the center. And he begins to purify and wash his people. But it's no longer a temple. It gets destroyed and Jesus says, I am the temple. And guess what? I'm going to be in you and you're going to be in me. And I'm going to put my spirit in you so that I'll begin with you to shape and to cleanse and to purify my people so that I get glory and you get joy at my coming. So what he's doing here in verse 17, he's reminding these people that God is coming first to the household of God, his people, his place, and he's going to shape them and he's going to make them into what he says he will finish. Philippians 1.6, he's going to finish what he started in you and he's going to use difficult things to do it because he is glorious, and he knows the end. He's given us that display a little bit, right? 
the righteous one came to suffer for the unrighteous that we might be brought into God's presence. We won't have any more sin. We won't have the wrath of God on us anymore. That's good news. That's something we rejoice in and move towards, open our hearts to. If God graciously and kindly sees fit for suffering and trial to work a purifying effect in his people here, then how much more uh, the fearful dread of those who are yet outside of Christ. So that moves us to that last piece that, we t- that um, Daniel said, gospel people in mission. What Peter's telling us here is, listen, that's a weight. There are some of you that have been brought into the family of God. You've said no to the old life, and you're now you're pursuing Jesus Christ, but what about the dread of those who are yet outside? Now, what does that do for us practically? That encourages us encourages us that we have the good news in us. Paul says in, for, in Second Corinthians, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. We're now putting on display the glory of God in our lives through difficult suffering and trials while doing good. And we're doing that to a watching world so that there are some that are brought, again in Jude, saved as though being pulled from the fire. Mercy being poured out on these people. The people around us are our unsaved friends or co-workers. If you're suffering, God wants to shape you, and he wants to shape the people around you. He wants to call people into the light. He wants to transform people. First Corinthians, you know, Paul, Paul was told to go there and keep preaching because he had people in that city. Keep declaring the good news of the gospel in your workplaces, at school, with your friends and your family, because God has people here. And God has a vision to see people shaped and changed and called into his family, and we're carrying the weight of that a little bit. Verse 19. Well, actually, verse 18 first. It's um, a quotation, direct quotation from Proverbs, where in Proverbs 11, um, the writer is going back and forth with these positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative um, statements. And he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Basically, um, in Proverbs, it's, it's calling the, the reader to listen to, to God's two choices. Fear me, honor me, and you'll have wisdom and knowledge. That's the beginning of the fear of the Lord, is the, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or reject it and go the way of the fool. And in Proverbs 11, he's making that statement again. You've got the opportunity, you've got the choice here. And Peter is drawing on that and says, listen. There's a choice still. You still have an opportunity to declare this good news with your life through suffering, but rejoice. Verse 19, we have a faithful creator. So, God is faithful. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. We sang, he will hold me fast. We're singing that at the end of the service. Are we trusting our souls to a faithful creator in the midst of suffering? Or do we not like it? We kind of bucking against suffering. It's not good. I don't want to rejoice in this. Well, Peter's saying rejoice because it is good. God is faithful to his promise. He will finish what he started in you. And he's going to use trial and it might hurt a just a little bit. But it's going to be way better than suffering the eternal wrath of God for your sin. So... It must be known that Christ will use whatever means 
suffering, trial, difficulty, to test the genuineness of his followers and to shape us and to make us holy. God said, be holy because I am holy. Pursue what you've been called to be. So in this life, we embrace suffering with joy because that's what God said with a bunch of other writers. Hebrews 12, right? 7 through 11 reminds us that God is all about shaping us because he loves us. What father will not discipline his son if he loves him? We are going to be shaped by a good father for a good end because he loves us. And he'll use the difficult things in our life because he cares so much more about our end than our joy in the moment, our happiness in the moment. Revelation 22, very end of the scriptures, verses 10 through 17. And he said to me, don't seal up these words of this prophecy, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, let the righteous still be right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And where do we wash our robes? But in the blood of Jesus. So that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Jesus wants us to be with him and he knows his holiness. Doesn't, we, we don't compare, we don't match outside of Jesus Christ. And so he sent Jesus to be the righteous, to die for the unrighteous, so that we can now, in this life, begin to transform and begin to look like he wants us to look and to begin to be ready to enter those gates, pure, before God, blameless. That's exciting. That's good news. That's hopeful. That shapes us. It's the gospel. It's good news. It's been, he's been faithful to us in Jesus Christ. It should motivate our souls. It should move us, transform our lives. It looks like bearing the name of Christ as a banner and not a burden. This looks like telling his wonderful love instead of cowering when life's worries are something we can't get through. They're giving us a hard time. This looks like being a passionate praiser of God's glorious grace when we sing together. It looks like a confident hope in uncertain political crap right now. We don't know what it's going to look like. It could be really crazy. Guess what? Faithfulness to God and trusting in his faithful character looks like confidence when everybody else says, I don't know what's going to happen. We do. We have a good Savior who's going to bring us to a good end. This looks like steady plotting when life doesn't seem to make sense. When you're in a stage of life that's difficult or hard and you don't know what's going on, it's steady plotting. This looks like worship of a good king when we feel the deepest longings of our heart aren't getting met. It looks like resting in God's promises to start and finish the work of restoration in one of our children, maybe our unsaved family members. This entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good, looks like we worship a coming king who has finished the work that we could never do. And it changes us from people that are sad or sorrowful in trial to people that are joyful 
in trial, to people that see the Holy Spirit at work in us and point it out and say, that's good. That means I'm going to pass. That means God's in me. That means I'm going to see his face. That's exciting. That's perseverance. God perseveres the people he calls. Whom God justifies, he will glorify. We know the end is sure. But in the middle, when it's uncertain, the spirit in us, trials, difficulty, they're to cause us to rejoice because God is doing something. God is going to shape you. You're going to look better than gold and silver when he comes back. And it's going to be all about his glory, and you get to participate in it and magnify his name. That's what we're looking forward to. No matter what I feel in this, these circumstances of life, God came to crush the head of the serpent. He called Abraham, sustained Joseph and the 12 tribes, brought them mightily out of Egypt, drove out the inhabitants of Canaan, gave them a land that he had promised, and faithfully proclaimed through the prophets the coming Messiah who faithfully came as a savior, a truer and better prophet, priest, and king now stands before God as our mediator, and we will see him face to face. Our God is faithful. He will finish what he started here. Christ is a full and true expression of a faithful God. He came as our example in suffering, our savior from ultimate suffering, our faithful supplier of grace in this life, and the sovereign king who's going to judge this world and he begins with his children. So we rejoice today in God's suffering or in the sufferings of Christ, the trials and the difficulty of doing good yet suffering. We rejoice in the difficulty of this life knowing that God's going to shape us and change us. So I'm going to have um, Chris come up here. We're going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast, and then we'll close out. Let's all stand together. Sing along. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through fearful path for my love is often cold he must hold me fast he will hold me 
Then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He loves you. And nothing will separate us from Christ. So, if there's trials, if there's difficulties, no, it's not bad. He loves you. He's going to shape you. He's going to make you into what he wants. He's going to have a people to display his glory at the day of Christ when he comes. And we're going to gather around his throne. We're going to worship. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. That's exciting. That's good news. Today, let's go in the grace of God, the good news of the gospel. You're dismissed.